Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you're discussing in football. I mean, McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. We're going to get straight to the news as we like to do. And Duncan, some interesting developments in the potential transfer of RB Leipzig's German striker Timo Werner. Yeah, we've told you in the podcast that Werner is one of the strong candidates um, for that attacking reinforcement that Manchester United have prioritised in the January window after making such a mistake by letting Lukaku go and being very dependent and one-dimensional in the the type of um, fast uh, attackers with no sort of uh, reference point forward. We've also told you that Liverpool are um, very keen on Werner and have uh, started negotiations with his camp over transfer. Um, can tell you that Manchester United sent their head of global scouting, Marcel Boot, to Germany uh, at the weekend to watch the Hertha Berlin Leipzig match and specifically um, to uh, run his eye over Werner in that game. Um, it's a match in which Werner scored Leipzig's opening goal, their equaliser in 38 minutes from the penalty spot and uh, one of their um, final goals in the 4-2 victory right at the end of the game. Um, So performed well. Um, And uh, a decision I think has to be made um, on Werner and whether they can persuade him that uh, Manchester United is a better place for him to go than Liverpool, also whether they could persuade Leipzig to allow him to leave in January. Um, there is a release fact, clause. I'm told it's quite an, a complex uh, arrangement. Uh, I'm also told that Werner is looking for an extremely high salary um, when he does make his move away from the Bundesliga. The figure I'm hearing is of 300,000 a week uh, is the 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 figure that's being floated as the the price to secure him, obviously conscious that he has um, both Manchester United and Liverpool, two of the most affluent clubs in football, uh, pursuing him. And Ian, I think you've got some further information on uh, United's options to fix the attacking problems they have. Indeed, Duncan. um, Obviously, their interest in Mario Mandzukic stretches back to the summer. And interesting, uh, their interest also in um, Erling Braut Haaland um, is also very much alive. Uh, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been consulting with his coaching staff and also with uh, Manchester United's uh, rather large array of uh, recruitment specialists. Um, his particular worry for the second half of the season is the lack of um, conversion rate of both Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford, something I think in terms of Rashford specifically we saw uh, in the second half against Brighton Hove Albion last Sunday when he could have had as many as six goals uh, but missed a handful of, uh, of, of very good opportunities uh, that he could have uh, certainly converted. Now, to that end, Mandzukic would be your better bet and, and I think Solskjaer... Uh, admits this, certainly has spoken to his coaches about it. Uh, very experienced striker, age of 32, international, obviously has won trophies at the highest level. Um, however, Manzuki comes with a high salary as well as a €12 million Euro 
transfer fee uh, and will want a reasonably long contract uh, to make the move. Uh, we've also discussed in the pod, as you will all remember, Mandzukic isn't the easiest character in a dressing room if he's not getting things his way or he doesn't feel the love. So he's, what uh, Solskjaer has is a choice potentially between that kind of difficulty with a, a senior player but who is proven or with Haaland, uh, who's currently playing and playing very well, admittedly, at RB Salzburg in the Austrian League. Uh, he's only 19. Uh, he has a personal relationship with Solskjaer, having been coached by him at Molde in Norway. Um, Haaland is available, although Salzburg would prefer if he, he was sold that he'd be loaned back to them for the rest of the season. But, of course, he's not proven on the big stage. So it's, uh, you can see the bigger picture here. Um, United juggling a lot of balls with regards to strikers. Werner, Haaland, Mandzukic. Um, they have turned down the opportunity to re-sign Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Uh, that was offered to them by Mino Raiola. So clearly, they're not, they don't want to go backwards. But I think um, the, if, if Solskjaer's his problem in terms of the goals that, that you know, Manchester are not scoring. And Duncan, I think it's at 16-4 in the Premier League already this season and 12 against. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, correct. So you, so you can see that, that that has been a problem for them, um, especially with the way that they are struggling to climb the table. So um, it's going to be very, very busy for Manchester United in terms of trying to negotiate uh, deals for each of these players. Because, of course, what happens in these situations is you try to put a deal in place for everyone and then you don't choose the striker you want or the one that's the best value or the best bet. So, yes, uh, expect to see a lot of movement in terms of Manchester United and strikers over the next, uh, well, six to eight weeks. Just 16 goals. We've got to remember that Manchester United have had an extraordinary number of penalties um, this season um, already. They've missed a lot of those penalties, but they've also scored a lot of those penalties. So the, the goal scoring from open play is poor. Mandzukic is a player who is definitely available because Juventus want him off their books. Um, they, he has an offer from Qatar, as we, we told you on the podcast a few weeks ago, which he has intimated that he would like to take. In those circumstances, Juventus would subsidise part of his wages. You've got to factor in a Solskjaer if you take Mandzukic, not only his personality um, and the, the, the difficulty of managing him as a player who expects to be in the first team. You'd have to factor in that he hasn't played football um, this season. Uh, he's been sidelined from Juventus's Champions League squads, sidelined from their team. So you're taking a older player, albeit one who who has always kept himself in good condition in the past, who is not match fit in the terms of having played um, club football. So that is going to be an additional risk there. But um, it is a central uh, focus for Manchester United and they've been doing a lot of work on this teeing up deals and as you say the United's way is to to set up multiple deals at the same time before deciding which one of those they um, want to trigger as the first choice. We should also note Duncan on that uh, potential difficulty of Mandzukic's fitness that uh, Juventus have said to United and this is how desperate they are to get rid of the player if we can reach a deal before January, the first, obviously, when he has to be registered, he can come and train with you in December so that he is up to match sharpness or at least looks to have had a pre-season properly 
before uh, he would play his first game, uh, presumably in January. So just lets you see just how desperate Juventus are to offload Mandzukic. Personally, I'd always be just slightly cynical if a club was that desperate to get rid of a player. Uh, or indeed, I'd have to be a club who was desperate to get a player. Um, as I see, there will be developments. And of course, we'll bring you the news first here on the transfer window. Now, we're expecting some big news over the next few days and possibly even later uh, this afternoon. Remember, this is Friday's podcast um, regarding the financial fair play um, issues which have been dogging Manchester City for some months now. Um, Duncan, you have some interesting news regarding the adjudicatory panel um, where uh, UEFA have been deciding what a fate City should face um, if indeed they are proven to have been guilty of breaking FFP rules. Yeah, so look, today we're, we're expected to hear a verdict from Cass on Manchester City's appeal against that process um, that uh, UEFA have put in place. They've been investigated for financial fair play transgressions. The investigatory chamber made its conclusion some time ago and made its recommendations to the adjudicatory chamber that Manchester City should be banned from Champions League competition as a punishment for those transgressions, which have been very well documented in the press, documentary evidence, uh, internal club emails of the way in which uh, money was uh, taken from Abu Dhabi's resources and put onto Manchester City's books in order to allow them to um, appear to comply with FFP uh, rules um, earlier uh, in this decade. Um, that cast verdict is about whether it was correct for UEFA to go through the process of making this decision. It's not actually an appeal against the decision that is taken because the decision has not been announced by the adjudicatory chamber. Um, there was a report yesterday that UEFA have decided, i.e. the adjudicatory chamber has decided that Manchester City will not be banned, that they will ignore the recommendation from the investigatory um, group and uh, that the punishment would be of a financial nature as it was the last time Manchester City were found guilty of breaching FFP, which was in 2014. Um, top two contacts in UEFA about this. I have not been able to get a confirmation. Um, I'm being told that this information is being held very tight by the governing body. Um, but uh, uh, my contacts have said it would not surprise them if they have caved in and decided not to take the risk of banning Manchester City with the legal ramifications that would have. Manchester City have made it quite clear that they will fight this as far as they can and they will use the full resources of the Abu Dhabi state to ensure that they are um, not uh, they are not dealt with in a way that they are unhappy with, which would obviously be uh, found guilty and being banned from the competition that Abu Dhabi want to win above all others in world football. What I'm also hearing is that three members of the investigatory chamber have resigned their positions from that group. Um, in recent months. And uh, the implication is that that is connected with the UEFA stance, not just on Manchester City, 
but definitely on Manchester City as that is the high, you know, the highlight, the top case, um, and the, the one where the evidence has been most public. But also that Paris Saint Germain managed to um, escape punishment on a technicality um, earlier this year. Um, when they took their uh, their case to Cass, and um, also um, I understand over the handling of AC Milan, who were banned from European competition this season, but banned um, from the Europa League rather than the Champions League, and the ban coming in uh, and a kind of an agreed settlement after both UEFA and Milan knew that Milan weren't going to be in the Champions League this year. So the, the suggestion is it was a, uh, a compromise deal to, to get the punishment out of the way at a time would it, when it would damage Milan less because the money from the Europa League is nowhere near as significant as the money from the Champions League. So we wait for the official decision and um, but there is a great what you can what, what is for sure is there is a great deal of turmoil within UEFA and within the people who have been involved in this process and as we've said when examining this on the transfer window podcast from the very start this was always a highly political and highly complex decision for UEFA to make with at a time in which um, the future of the Champions League is in doubt, the future of whether UEFA retain control over the premier club competition for um, football's biggest and most affluent clubs, um, the push for the European Super League, which people like um, our uh, our friend Roger Mitchell, who is well-connected in these circles, suggest will is inevitably going to happen. And the debate is over who governs it, whether it's UEFA, whether it's FIFA, whether it's another body entirely. Um, and as we said, the risks involved for UEFA in going head to head with one of the biggest and most important and most politically powerful players in football has been obvious for everyone to see. Now, I'm also told, Duncan, that the um, costs that UEFA have already had to shell out in terms of legal fees and external lawyers, because UEFA, of course, have a very, very competent uh, team of in-house lawyers. But because this case is so complex, they've already spent millions of euros in external legal consultation and that there is a distinct uh, feeling that if they were to pursue this further, and as you already mentioned, Manchester City are prepared to go beyond any um, formal judgment by UEFA and by CAS, uh, if it means that they get to pursue what they see as justice, that UEFA simply cannot afford to be embroiled in that kind of legal battle with the unlimited resources that Manchester City have behind them. Now, the implications uh, and the consequences for financial fair play are very serious here because effectively this will set a precedent where an investigation uh, team and then a judicatory chamber between them had made a decision that Manchester City, let's just say, were to be banned. Now, this is hypothetical, of course. And then that decision was not carried through for the reasons that we've outlined. Then where does that leave financial fair play? Actually, it leaves it in ruins because it shows that it can be defeated if you're willing to take it that far. And so City's case will always be cited by anyone else from now on who is charged with FFP transgressions. And they will then say, well, FFP was supposed to be the very ethos of FFP 
was to make a more of a fairer um, playing field for every club to operate so that super rich clubs like Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, etc., couldn't simply just spend what they liked uh, and then win, a, win every trophy, etc., etc. So even small clubs now could say, well, you completely undermined your own rules. Um, so, you know, what, what, what have we got to believe in with regards to FFP? And, you know, this is... Remember, FFP was the brainchild and also the full, the full manifesto of Michel Platini, who has since, of course been banned from football, uh, you know, in in disgrace for receiving illegal payments from FIFA. So there may be some people at UEFA thinking, Do you know what, this is just too difficult. Just, just, you know, it's not even our baby anymore. We're effectively carrying someone else's baby who has since been shown to have been corrupt. So why bother? And that will mean, of course, that we go back to the old system where clubs like PSG and City, not that they have, although City have behaved much better, Duncan, than PSG have in terms of excessive spending recently, um, to, yeah, we'll just buy whoever we like. Yes, that is that is the implication. If, if Manchester City um, get away with a financial fine for a second time, then they will have broken financial fair play rules and broken them in (laughs) an obvious and excessive fashion which every other or almost every other club that they're competing with feels is a major breach of the competition rules because remember financial fair play is central to Champions League competition and every other club has been tasked with adhering to those rules and constraining the resources they're able to put onto the the playing pitch by those rules. And you will have a circumstance should they be found, either be found not guilty by the adjudicatory chamber or let off with a financial penalty as opposed to a actual ban from the competition, then they will have been seen to have broken FFP twice and been let off twice. So um, basically death knell for FFP as a, com- a central element of the competition rules uh, in European competition. And remember- There's a domino effect as well, Duncan, um, in terms of the undermining of the governing bodies, both FIFA and uh, UEFA. Of course, both um, are currently involved in um, rather sensitive but very um, ambitious plans to expand the World Cup, to have a new World Club championship, which has more teams in it, possibly even a World Super League uh, in a non-World Cup year or a non-European championship year, uh, potentially, of course, funded by billions of of petrodollars from from, uh, the Gulf states. So it could be any one or more uh, funding those new projects that both FIFA and UEFA are keen to get going and investing because it ma- makes a huge amount of revenue for them. So you've got to say, like, it doesn't take a you know a genius to work out there could be a compromise here with regards to what's happening in the future uh, and what's happening now. And um, when I mentioned domino effect, I also mean, of course, that uh, on the 20th of November, so next week, Cass will um, hear Chelsea's case against uh, the two-window transfer ban that they uh, had been hit with um, last March. They chose not to contest the summer one. Um, and then almost as a been claiming, well, we're good boys, we've done our time because we did one. What would you think about suspending the January one? And Chelsea are extremely confident, I'm told, of having that either suspended or overturned. So it seems like it could be a good week for the big boys in the Premier League with regards to getting around uh, 
any kind of further sanction uh, for their uh, mis uh, and transgression of the rules, Duncan. Um, but as we say, yeah, the, and you know, look, let, let's let's remember what happened last time with FFP. We had uh, Brian Quinn, who was a, a senior figure within UEFA, investigating Manchester City's breaches of FFP. At that point, resigning his position. Um, after the decision was made to let them off lightly at, uh, on that occasion. Um, here we have the three members of the investigatory chamber resigning around the time when a decision is due to be made on Manchester City. Um, and, you know, the implications for football at a time in which Saudi Arabia, um, which is more affluent than Abu Dhabi and Qatar, is, is planning and thinking of buying one of the major clubs in, in European football are huge because if FFP goes, then there is no limit on how much money Abu Dhabi and uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar can put into their their teams. And we return to the situation where Qatar can say, or Abu Dhabi, um, Kylian Mbappe is on the market, we will uh, spend a record amount of money for that player and pump his salary up to a level um, which no one else uh, is prepared to compete with, except in those circumstances you'd have three nation states, all with similar resources, competing for those players. So then you then you get the, the and the rivals as well, Duncan. Rivals in politics, rivals in uh, in their own um, part of the world, and now rivals in football. Yes, and and it's not hard to see what the inflation inflationary outcome of that would be, and what it would uh, imply for clubs who have to depend on resources they can generate themselves to purchase players. What would happen to them in that situation where you get unfettered spending returning to football for Qatar, Abu Dhabi and potentially Saudi Arabia thrown into that marketplace as well. So let's have a little time capsule moment, Duncan. We're not going to dig this time capsule up in 50 years' time. I reckon it'll be two years' time or maybe less. How much will Kylian Mbappe be getting paid to play for one of the multi-billion air petrodollar clubs uh, who will be involved in European football in, say, one year or two years' time. His next contract, well, he can certainly, if I'm killing Mbappe's father... Uh, and I bet you wish you were. <laughs> <laughs> um, where I had Real Madrid um, desperate to sign the player, and you know that Barcelona will probably come in and, and try if they've got the resources to do that. Um, a Manchester United with new new owners, potentially. Um, he's probably out of Liverpool's reach, but Manchester City freed, to, freed up to spend again. Look, £35 million net is Neymar's current basic salary. Uh, Messi managed to get himself a deal which was worth in the region of £50 million net when he uh, blackmailed Barcelona with the idea that he was going to move to Manchester City and be paid by Abu Dhabi. And you have the um, senior politician in Abu Dhabi and chairman of Manchester City on record as saying that the transfer he regrets not doing was Lionel Messi's. Um, you know, put, put yourself in that situation. I think I'd be asking for 50 million net as a starting point for Mbappe. So equating to effectively around 90 or 100 million a year gross then? Yes, basic salary, bonuses coming on top. Well, their time capsule has been put into the Transfer Window Podcast's garden. We will um, dig that up when Kylian Mbappe moves and we'll see if our predictions were close or even spot on. 
Duncan, uh, another issue that we have been very, very much uh, all over on the back on, call it a cheap suit if you like, because it certainly feels that way, is VAR. Uh, now, we uh, spoke earlier in this week's podcast about the Premier League stakeholders meeting, which took place on Thursday of this week. And uh, having spoken to two or three people who were present at that meeting, um, I'm told that Mike Riley uh, began his presentation to the 20 stakeholders rather nervously because he knew there were a lot of people in the room who were basically had their knives out ready to get him, but that he gave a very, in the end, a very confident and competent presentation. The key statistic uh, that he quoted and one which, of course, the clubs uh, couldn't really deny or at least certainly could not ignore was that uh, the percentage of match, potentially match-deciding decisions uh, had gone up from, uh, in terms of getting them right, that is, from 82% to 91% from last season to the first 12 matches of this season under VAR. So almost a tenth improvement um, and that was the key stat, I'm told, which swayed clubs to uh, avert themselves from going down the route of mo- tabling a motion for suspension of VAR. Instead, they have agreed a very minimal uh, course of changes, Duncan, which I'm sure you're aware of. Just let me read the statement, because yet another statement has come out from the Premier League now with regards to VR. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, the implementation of VR was discussed at length. And the Premier League and the Professional Game Match Officials Board committed to improving the consistency of decisions, speeding up processes and increasing communication to fans. Duncan, is this enough? Or, you know, or is this, this is just lip service? Because the fans, more than any are the group of people who are, um, you know, well, not just the fans, the referees as well as the, some of the clubs, uh, the ones that I feel like this has been farcical and needs to change dramatically in order to improve. Well, look, I think the key thing here is for anything to change, you had to have a two-thirds majority of Premier League clubs forcing that change upon Mike Riley um, beyond what he has offered, which is um, video screens instead of saying decision, uh, uh, VAR deciding on a penalty, it's going to say VAR deciding on a penalty possible handball. I mean, great. Uh, that additional piece of information is really going to make a difference to satisfying fans in the stadium about delays and and not seeing the process going on. I, I note that the Premier League state that they would like to show videos um, and and suggesting that they would like to uh, allow the communication between the referee and the VAR to be broadcast, but they're not allowed to do so because of the IFAB protocol. So they're kind of laying that off. Um, which is ironic given they are ignoring a lot of the IFAB protocol in terms of not using pitch-side monitors um, to uh, allowing referees to go and look at them, and they have not changed their guidance on those and that the, the referee should only look if he has he's in um, significant disagreement with what he's been told by the VER, i.e. his view of the event is um radically different from that that the VAR is giving or uh, yes unseen incidents as the, the other thing whether they're saying that we would allow a referee to go to the monitor but of course not one referee has gone to a monitor yet in all of the games we've seen so far um, some of the some of the discussion that's come out from stakeholders i.e. chairman owners of clubs I think indicates why 
that that two-thirds majority was impossible to reach. I mean, you've got David Gold saying this is a brand new system. We just have to be a bit more patient. We will get it right. These are things that have got to improve. And that, to me, is very Anglo-centric. VAR is not a brand new system. VAR has been in football since the Confederations Cup before the last World Cup. And uh, we've seen... You know, in in, in some uh, domestic leagues, it's been in place. This is the third season in which it's been in place. So we've seen the errors and the mistakes and the controversies, and the politics that go around it. So referees competing with each other, um, not being happy with someone that they're uh, competing with for premium games and FIFA appointments having the 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 the, um, the power to overrule them and video has been that's been a problem in Italy we've seen all of this developing elsewhere so the idea that it's a new system and um, it, it'll fix itself I think is just it's it, it's clearly not the case it's it hasn't yeah. fixed itself el- elsewhere so why should it fix itself here and you know the Premier League's argument in terms of of, of VAR was we will wait and, and watch what happens elsewhere and implement it better than anyone else because we will have learned from what they're doing. That clearly hasn't happened. So so now to revert back to it's a new system and um, we'll get it right down the line is, is I think, indicates the that those sort of voices from people like David Gold are the ones who want it to work and haven't yet accepted that it isn't working. The statistics that, that Riley presented, and it's interesting that you tell us that that worked to convince um, the stakeholders that it was a good thing. I, I think um, fascinating, 82, only 82% of decisions, um, key match incidents, as they described them correct last season. Um, it would have been great if, that, if we were getting statistics like that um, for the last five, six seasons. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> it seems very selective, doesn't it, all of a sudden? I, they're saying that an increase to 91% is a is a great achievement. Imagine the, that Mike Riley had come and, uh, and the Premier League publicly released statistics five years ago saying um, the Premier League referees are getting 91% of decisions right. I don't think people would be particularly happy with that, that they're getting one out of every 10 wrong. And remember, this is on their own analysis. So this is these statistics are being generated by Mike Riley to justify the working of VAR. So he's, well, he has a person sitting saying that VAR decision was correct. Duncan, um, he's also thrown his own referees under the bus there. Because what he yes. said yesterday is... Almost one uh, one fifth of all key match decisions in last season's Premier League was wrong. One one fifth. How yeah. can you how can you that be acceptable? I mean, human error is is acceptable because we all understand. You know, represented in senior, you got more wrong in the field tonight than I have. Now, so we all accept that human error is part of the game. But to produce a statistic like that just to justify VAR is you know what the referees can think about that. Yes, and, and look, the, the whole statistic-making process is questionable. You, you really, if you want to use these statistics for a proper assessment of one, whether referees' decisions are correct or not, two, whether VAR is improving those decisions, it has to be done by an independent body. 
you can't have the people who are implementing the system deciding whether their decisions and their VAR decisions are correct or not, because they're inherently biased. We know Mike Riley is under huge pressure over this. We know that there's dissent from every area of the game over the handling of VAR. Of course, he's going to present a statistic that that, um, that says that VAR is doing a good job. Um, you know, he hasn't gone, fortunately, to the level FIFA did at the World Cup with their statistic that 99.35% of decisions were correct after VAR, i.e. only three of all the goal, you know, the, the major areas in which um, VAR makes an assessment during the entire World Cup, FIFA's claim was only three decisions were incorrect. Anyone watching the World Cup knows that's not true. And I think if you were to go back through this Premier League season and get an independent body to assess whether 91% were correct after VAR, I, I seriously doubt an independent body would come up with 91% being correct. Well, Duncan, here's the, the statistic, I think the key one that we're missing, as I've not been told, and that is, what is the percentage of VAR decisions uh, which, were over, which overturned a referee, which percentage of them were wrong? <laughs> I, can we judge VAR on VAR? Because Indeed. If, because if, if uh, we think, was it 29 have been overturned so far after 12 rounds of matches in the Premier League? So where's the statistic which tells us, well, actually on review of what the VR decision was, maybe five or six of those was, were incorrect, or maybe even 10. So then you've got the 50% of VR decisions that said were right are actually wrong. Now, fun enough, we don't have that information, and I doubt very much someone's calculating it right now either because it's not in their interests. Um, but in saying that, two other pieces of information that came out of yesterday's meeting. First of all, uh, there was a uh, conversation which was had between some smaller clubs um, I'm led to believe at least six or seven of the smaller stakeholders who believe that continuing with VR is in their interest because they feel like, they, and this is quite comical, they've got a better chance of getting a decision against a top six club if there's at least there's a review. <laughs> <laughs> that, you talk about Anglo-Centric, Duncan, that takes that even to even greater. And the other one was that uh, after Riley's presentation and during the question and answer session, which Riley then uh, had with the 20 uh, st stakeholder representatives, one of the stakeholders uh, near the end of that uh, discussion said, um, well, look, in light of everything that's happened, I think if we did anything drastic to change VR now, we're the ones who look stupid. So maybe it's in all of our interest just to get on with it. Yeah, I, I, I'll be fascinated to see what the um, the lower end Premier League clubs in two or three years time, if VAR lasts that long, whether they still think that VAR gives them a better chance of getting a decision against a big six club um, as they do now. And uh, they obviously haven't been paying attention to things like Real Madrid in the Champions League, um, having goals uh, that were offside, uh, reinstated by VAR when they're playing against Club Brugge in the... Uh, in the group stages and um, Ajax going ahead against Real Madrid in the knockout stages last season and having a, a goal chopped off by VAR, which most people would have said shouldn't have been chopped off. I think the, uh, I think down the line, when when this has been operating long enough and people have had the chance to do a scientific study, you'll find that VAR favours big sides just as um, on-pitch refereeing has all, always favoured big sides. The one thing I would say about the Champions League um, VAR um, is much more efficient, Duncan. Anyone who's been watching Champions League so far this season, 
will probably have seen for themselves that it's it's much more quick. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or it's any better percentage-wise, but it's certainly decisions are made much more quickly. I think the average decision takes between 45 and 55 seconds, whereas here we're running at three minutes. So <clears throat> clearly they're doing something better in terms of at least uh, getting things decided quickly, keeping the game flowing and making sure that the fans are uh, informed as well. Yeah, look, I, I see what Aston Villa chief executive Christian Perslow has said, and, and he's obviously in the uh, seriously concerned camp, and he's saying clubs have got grave concerns, but so has everybody in the room. Had a very robust discussion. The message has got through to the league and to the referees association that fans are unhappy, and many stakeholders in the game think we have to do a whole lot better. And he talks about um, he expects to see real improvements in the speed of decisions, consistency of which is what everybody craves. And I think above all else, for those of us in the stadio, we want much better communication about what's going on before, during and after. So that shows you the anger and it shows you that, that what they're proposing is a path to solve things. My personal view is even if you implement this stuff, you, you just result in having other problems. Therefore, it doesn't get solved. And in the end, you conclude the system doesn't benefit the game. There's always a problem with it, whichever way you implement it. Well, unlike VR, the quickfire round of a Friday transfer window podcast causes no concern in terms of what the decisions are or indeed the percentage of the ones that we get right. Because, of course, we always get it right because we are the quickfire round. And today's quickfire round, Duncan, is going to be a comparison of hat tricks because two significant ones were scored in European qualifying this week. One by England's golden boy, Harry Kane, and one by the golden boy of the world, Cristiano Ronaldo. I put it to you, which one was best? I uh, I think I'm going to go with Cristiano Ronaldo here and um, just for the, the, the quality of one goal in particular that he scored and also the numbers that, that he has put up as a, as a player through his career and his response um, to some difficult times at Juventus with Maurizio Sarrius to come out and score three for Portugal uh, and get himself ever closer to that 100 international goal mark which um, Sergio Crucinus predicted he would go through and I think he predicted on the podcast that Cristiano would become the all-time highest international um, goal scorer before he retires as a player. Well, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, please, if you've not seen it, get it online. Second goal for Cristiano Ronaldo last night. He takes the ball first time on quite a, quite a firm pass sweeps the ball at the far corner. It is just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Two goals shine out of the 100 club in international football. And he's now scored 30-plus goals for club and country for the 13th consecutive year. No other player has achieved that. Just, I mean, he, he says he's a machine. He's not a machine. He's like a terminator of football. This has been Friday's Transfer Window podcast. Please Join the debate, continue the debate with us um, at Transfer Podcast on Twitter and also at Duncan Castle at Garbo SJ. As you can tell from our timeline this week, we love to get involved with you. We love to hear your views. And of course, we like to have a you know, we disagreement with you now and again as well. So don't be shy. Uh, keep it going over the weekend because uh, we will be back on Monday and we will see you through the transfer window then. Thanks for listening. Yeah.